forest plan means input from the people who use it and protect it. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, September 19th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we hear from Lou Conroy. He's the Forest Plan Revision Team Leader for the Black Hills National Forest. We'll talk about a new land management plan for the multi-use forest, and we'll talk about your role in deciding what that plan looks like. This week's teacher talk is a tribute to the library. Jackie Wilbur and Gina Benz illuminate the importance of the space and of the library professionals who make it a space worth having. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We'll also welcome our On Call with the Prairie Doc team member today. Dr. Deb Johnston is with us. We are broadcasting live from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The 2023 South Dakota Festival of Books is this weekend in Deadwood. That is a three-day celebration of books where readers and writers converge, and it features both national and local authors. I know I'm excited. I hope you are, too. So my next guest is here to give us a preview of the events. Jennifer Woodman is director of the South Dakota Center for the Book at the South Dakota Humanities Council. She's with us now on the phone. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start with the Young Readers uh, Festival of okay. Books. Or the young, yeah, tell us, because we kick off on, on Wednesday. There's so, there's so much happening. Where would you like to begin? <laughs> there is a lot happening, and we do have kind of a fun pre-festival event on Wednesday in Rapid City called Women Behaving Badly. But to go to the whole other end of the spectrum, we're all just so thrilled that the fabulous rock star author Kate DiCamillo is our 2023 Young Readers One Book South Dakota author. We have been able to put copies of that book, uh, The Tale of Despero, into the hands of well over 12,000 third graders. We've reached every school in the state this year for the first time that we've been sure we did that. And students in Rapid City, Deadwood, and throughout the hills will be able to see her, meet her, and hear from her on Thursday and Friday. And uh, she's also doing some public events um, that people who are young of heart will enjoy. Yes. Okay. So she is in Rapid City for Thursday evening at 5 o'clock. And let's just start by, because we're going to go through a lot of information here, Jennifer, where do you want people (laughs) to go to find out the latest online? The best place uh, to go is our website, sdbookfestival.com. We are in the process of of updating schedules and things like that as things change, so that will give you the absolute latest. But you can go there to look at the the entire schedule. You'll see when Kate is presenting. You'll see when other things are happening. You will learn which events you need tickets for, which is just a few, Um, and you'll see a lot of other things that you'll want to know. Let's talk about some of the adult authors. Um, Who is coming, some of the big names that you want to draw people's attention to? Well, I think one that a lot of people are really excited about is David Gran, who writes narrative history. His book, Killers of the Flower Moon, was uh, just this wonderful exploration of um, racial injustice and economic injustice in uh, Oklahoma, and it's being made into a movie, so it's on some people's radar. Uh, The movie will come out in October, directed by Martin Scorsese, so that's not bad company to be in. (laughs) He also has a new book called The Wager, which is about a shipwreck off the coast of Peru and is kind of an edge-of-your-seat thing. Um, He'll also be part of some of our programming that deals with the... 
missing and murdered Indigenous persons, um, which several of our, our events will deal with. And we've got some wonderful uh, Indigenous writers coming in to talk about that. Joe Marshall of South Dakota. Um, we've got... Um, Deborah Erling, we've got all sorts of people coming in to do different kinds of treatments on that. Um, workshops, what uh, can the people who are interested in being writers connect with these authors at book signings and such, but then also there are workshops. Tell us about that. Yes, we have several workshops. I think there are either six or seven. Most of them are on Friday, but some uh, one at least is on Saturday. We're doing a special workshop for veterans, um, but we're also doing workshop on various aspects of writing that you might be interested in. C.M. Wendelboe, who writes uh, Western-based mysteries, is going to do a big-picture workshop that takes you from beginning the writing to through the entire publishing process. We've also got uh, authors working on using your journal to create your novel or writing poetry or using other texts as examples. Um, so those are some of the things that do require tickets, and those, again, can be found at sdbookfestival.com. Okay. Um, what do you want to leave us with? Something about this is how many years of this festival now? This is the 21st event. We celebrated our big 20th uh, anniversary last year, so we're excited to be charging into this third decade. And we just think that this is one of the most special gatherings in the state. Uh, readers and writers are wonderful people. You'll have incredible conversations here. You'll be able to shake the hand of, of authors that you've always wanted to meet. And you'll be able to discover some of the treasures that are right here in our own state. Yeah, wonderful. Jennifer Woodman with the uh, Center for the Book in South Dakota, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. The 21st Annual South Dakota Festival of Books is September 22nd through the 24th. That's in Deadwood this year. In the Moment broadcast live from the SDPB Rapid Studios on Thursday and on Friday. We are live from the Lodge in Deadwood. I hope to see you there. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, I know all the women listening to the show right now have heard this time and time again, but here it is again. Schedule your yearly mammogram and watch for changes in your breasts. The On Call with the Prairie Doc team is here with another reminder, including a message about just how important it is to keep vigilant breast health in your mind. Dr. Deb Johnston is a family medicine physician at Avera Medical Group in Brookings, and she's with us on the phone. Dr. Johnston, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Lori. We hear it all the time, and that means we never forget, but it also means sometimes it can fade into the background because we hear it all the time and we think we'll get to it, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. How important is it to get to it? And by it, I mean that self-exam, that doctor's appointment, that mammogram. It is really important. I mean, early detection is our our best tool for fighting breast cancer and helping people with the, you know, survive longer and have a good quality of life. And um, it, it is just really, really important. And, you know, it, yes, we do hear it all the time. We talk about it all the time. It's usually in the back of our mind, you know, but you would be amazed at how many times I'll tell someone, you know, you're you're really overdue for your mammogram, and they'll be, no, 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 I'm I I just had that done, you know, just uh, a few months ago, but no, it was a few years ago because it's one of those things that's just 
such a routine part of our lives that sometimes we lose track of what it actually was. So, you know, uh, double check. Some people are really good. They always have it done on their birthday or around sure. their birthday, and then they have that reminder about when it's due. But most of us have gotten off of that, even if we started on that schedule, and it's really easy to lose track. So what kind of uh, screening tools do we have now that are helping us find breast cancer earlier and earlier? And are those things available throughout the state of South Dakota, or is it just in some places that you know of, of course? So most places will routinely do what we call a 3D mammogram now, which is an advancement in technology that's maybe about 10 years old in terms of how long it's been widely available. Uh, And that just gives the radiologist a much clearer picture of what's going on inside the breast. And that's pretty standard. Most places that that offer mammograms are going to offer that. And most places around the state uh, that have radiology departments are going to be able to to offer a mammogram. Um, Some of the newer tools, uh, for example, contrast and enhanced spectral mammography where uh, they actually will will use an IV contrast to get a clearer picture of the breast. That's only going to be offered in some of the bigger areas around the state. Um, You know, we don't have that here in Brookings and I think Sioux Falls and probably Pierre, maybe Aberdeen, Rapid are going to be your sites for that. And the same for the mammogram. They need special... um, Uh, adjustments in the MRI machine, I'm sorry, MRI, not mammogram, Mm -hmm. in order to be able to to do an MRI of the breast. And so that's another one of those tools that um, can be very useful but aren't going to be as widely available in in our region. Um, And they are not things that the average woman is going to need either. If her mammogram is abnormal or if she is otherwise known to be at high risk, they might be part of part of what she experiences. But for the majority of women, it's just that plain old mammogram, maybe an ultrasound. If there's something that either is seen on the mammogram or that she has found or her doctor has found. Um, But for those more advanced technologies, they're going to be a little harder to come by. So Deb, I did know a man who had breast cancer once. How common is that? It's about 1% of Uh, people with breast cancer are male. And so, yes, we talk about breast cancer as if it is a disease that only affects women, uh, but that's not true. It is definitely a disease that overwhelmingly affects women compared to men, but men are by no means immune. So it is definitely important. What do women who have had um, breast implants need to know about screening for breast cancer? that you still have the possibility of having breast cancer uh, and those mammograms are important and those mammograms are safe for you. Obviously, the radiologist needs to know. uh, They can usually tell with what they see on the mammogram, but um, it is still safe for you and still important for you to do. What would you tell our transgender listeners they need to know about breast cancer? Uh, that our transgender listeners are also vulnerable to breast cancer. Um, women, trans women, of course, will have risks, um, you know, 
because of the hormones that they may take um, and trans men, not all of them have top surgery and, and they would still have breast tissue that would need to be examined. Uh, so uh, trans individuals also are at risk for breast cancer and, and need to be vigilant about uh, that awareness of their body and any changes that need to be um, reported and they should probably talk with their doctor because their individual circumstance, uh, what they have done to transition medically versus socially versus both uh, may impact that risk and what their screening should be. I know I've gotten a little casual about self-exams just because I have a good mammogram schedule and I have access to, to yep. great health care. So then I'm like, oh, we'll catch it at the mammogram. How important is it for people to know um, how to do a self-exam and, and to pay attention to those changes? Because you write in the weekly uh, uh, Prairie Doc Perspectives that your own mother noticed something but didn't get it tended to because she thought, you know, I've got I've been through this before and it's always negative and it turned out it wasn't this time. How important is it to notice right. those changes? It is really important to notice those changes. Um, you know, back in my early days, we would say about 10% of breast cancers are not visible on mammogram. Uh, and that, you know, that was under older technology, but the the important thing to know is that it's still true, that there are still a significant percentage of ma of breast cancers that don't have the characteristics that are easily seen on mammograms. So if you've noticed something, uh, it needs to be checked out. Don't just go schedule your regular mammogram and say, oh, well, that was fine, so it must be nothing, um, because it may need to be examined in a, a different way with one of those newer technologies or even a biopsy if, uh, if there's something different. Now, the actual value of the routine every month self-exam, there's been some doubt um, cast on that, and the kind of official line is women should be people should be familiar with their own breasts and uh, notice any changes. And honestly, probably the best way to do that is with the routine exams that you do, maybe not um, monthly. And certainly I tell people don't do it any more often than right. once a month because it's like watching your hair grow. And if I look <laughs> at my hair in the mirror every day, I don't really realize that it's yeah. how long it's getting. So, right. um, you know, people, do it once in a while. Yes. All right. On Call with the Prairie Doc broadcasts on SDPB TV One, and it's also on the Prairie Doc Facebook page. Dr. Johnston's episode airs this Thursday, September 21st. That's at 7 Central, 6 Mountain on SDPB TV. Deb, so nice to talk to you again. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, this week we are exploring the Black Hills National Forest in South Dakota. Tomorrow, we bring you SDPB's special report, Black Hills in the Balance. Today, let's get an overview of how the way the forest is managed may change with a new federal forest plan and how your voice matters in those decisions. Lou Conroy is the Forest Plan Revision Team Leader for the Black Hills National Forest. I met him in SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studios in Rapid City. It's complicated, but there is a plan, which means you can in some ways get your arm around it. 
Um, tell me a little bit about what a forest plan is so people understand how comprehensive it is. Okay, yeah. So a uh, forest plan is, is basically a land management plan for the national forest. It, it covers the environmental, social, and economic uh, pieces of everything that occurs in a national forest. Things of as far as the the range is in terms of livestock grazing, energy and minerals, uh, rare plants, wildlife, uh, recreation, uh, timber, and and every anything and everything that we do on a national forest. Uh, the forest plan uh, covers a. Uh, uh, general direction in terms of each of those resources. And this is a map for you to, as federal employees, when you're making a decision about something, when you're preparing a, a you know, a, a treatment for a certain area of the forest, that is a go-to. Like, how often do you reference it? Is it a plan that sits on the shelf, or is it a plan that you've got, you know, in the proverbial binder in your desk or committed to memory? Like, how important is the plan? It's very important. It's, you know, it's, it's the direction and guidance that uh, provides us uh, how the forest will be managed for the next 10 to 15 years. So an example would be anything that we do on a, so the forest is divided into four districts. So if one of the districts was proposing to put in a new campground, for example, uh, you know, we would refer to that forest plan and look under the recreation recreation section and see if there's any uh, standards or guidelines or guidance that would uh, uh, that would relate to uh, establishment of a new campground, for instance. Uh, you know, some uh, and then we'd also have to consider all the other resources. Perhaps there might be. This is all hypothetical right now, yeah. so there might be a situation where. You know, we need to avoid rare plant habitat or, or uh, obviously archaeological sites and things like that. So the forest plan would provide all that, um, those sideboards to work within as we work through the environmental process for uh, uh, the hypothetical campground in this case. How would you characterize the revision process? So uh, the revision process, under the, the 2012 planning rule, uh, you know, we're, we're required to re revise uh, forest plans, you know, they're good for basically 10 to 15 years. And after that, we have to take a look again at the the, econ or the environment, the social and the economic uh, uh, pieces of that plan. And, and, and if there's a significant change, that's what, uh, you know, we have to bring it up to, up to date, so to speak. Uh, so it's in compliance with the... Uh, new technology, new data, new scientific d data. Uh, so every f 10 to 15 years, we take a look and, and put, do a revision and, and you know, work through that, uh, putting together a new plan that will, again, manage the forest for the next 10 to 15 years. So it's a big, pro you know, it's a, lar a large process uh, with a lot of involvement with our public and our, and our tribal partners, so, and the general public as well, so. Where is it at right now? There's stages phases yeah so there, it's it's broken up into three phases uh the assessment phase uh which is phase one that's the phase we're in now and then there's phase two which is plan development that would be the the NEPA phase you know the national environmental policy act which you know people have may have heard a environmental impact statement will be developed at that piece and then once a, a newly revised plan is signed there's the phase three which is the monitoring phase which is uh, where we're required to do a, a monitoring 
uh, report every two years uh, based off of to, to help determine how this uh, newly revised plan is, is, is working. So. All right. How would you characterize the plan assessment in a time that is filled with, I mean, so much is going on, tension about, you know, timber harvest levels, new mining proposals, uh, you know, a new secretary of the interior, some mineral withdrawals, like all these things are happening at once and they're stressing me out, but you do not look stressed out at all. You look like this is under control and this is all part of the, I mean, is it like this every time? What? How would you characterize the planning process from, um, I don't say an emotional standpoint, but a, like, is it collaborative? Is it filled with tensions and balancing needs? What's it like to be part of that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So part of the 25 uh, planning rule, public, public involvement and collaboration is, is really emphasized. So hmm. currently we have... Uh, uh, seven uh, memorandums of understanding MOUs we call them with uh, uh, the seven uh, with seven counties five on the South Dakota side and two on the um, Wyoming side as well as the the natural resource districts on uh, Westing and Crook County on the on the Wyoming side so those are uh, cooperating agencies that uh, come to table and we also w- uh, work with our tribal partners through that piece so there's that piece but then the uh, other special interest groups, uh, environmental groups, uh, uh, sportsmen's groups, other, you know, and the general public at large are all part of that process as we move into this uh, next phase, which is phase two of planned development in the draft environmental impact statement. There will be numerous public meetings that will be put out there where the public will be invited to to uh, you know, visit with the Forest Service, and we'll be able to provide an overview of where we're at and what you know, you know, the process that we're going along. Public, the public piece is key in order to put together a good sound plan. So you know, there'll be formal comment periods where we'll accept comments, but there'll also be, you know, informal, so to speak, that we'll you know through these like, through these public meetings where we'll want to visit with people and get you know. What their what their thought is, uh, you know, on the national forest. You know, there's lots of the Forest Service. Uh, you know, is a multiple use agency, and so there's a lot of people, a lot of folks out there that use the forest in lots of different ways. And the Forest Service, you know, we we try to manage and provide those opportunities for the public at large. You know, mm. not everybody sees eye to eye and how it should be managed or how it should be used, but we try to provide, uh, you know. Uh, opportunities for everybody and then that in itself is complex and can be difficult at times so. yeah I found a lot of things with the people I'm talking to that that people did agree on what do you think some of the commonalities are all these different groups um, all want a sustainable forest for example they want it to be here I didn't find anybody who was like we want to get whatever we can and we want to leave behind stumps um, what did you find people had in common or have in common with their love of the Black Hills National Forest? Because they, it is beloved. Correct. Yes. Uh, yes. The people love the Black Hills National Forest. And the biggest thing I've found in common through, throughout my experience working through, through this revision process is, you know, people understand that the plan does need to be revised, that we do need to, we do need to get there. And, uh, you know, we do need to address some of these uh, these issues that are at hand. Some of them controversial, and some and some 
some of them maybe not so controversial, but, you know, the, the forest provides, you know, direction on multiple resources, and we need to take that hard look at all of them. So, Does the complexity and the tension make it harder? Is it more distracting, or does the complexity and tension make um, the urgency as such that if fewer people had to say, it wouldn't be as good when you were done. Like, you know, is it better to have a big family? <laughs> or is it better to have a small family in this case? Do you know what I'm asking there? Yes, I understand. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously the, you know, the the larger public involvement, uh, it does make it a lot more complex, you know, because lots of, lots of folks have different uh, uh, perspectives and viewpoints. Uh, but... Uh, but you know, it's 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 public land, and and, and it's it belongs to the public, so they all have a, a voice in, in 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 how it should be managed. So that that is very that may, does make it complex. It's so that you're trying to capture everybody's uh, uh, thoughts and comments throughout the process. So that that'll be in in and of itself is is very complex and difficult. But uh, you know, we are you know we intend to do the best job we can and, and, and make that part of the process because uh, that's the only way a good plan, uh, a newly revised plan will be be able to be put together is if we involve as many viewpoints as we can. And, not, you know, not everybody's going to get what they want, but because uh, that's that's how it works when, you know, you have uh, multiple viewpoints and some of them conflicting. But, you know, we try to provide uh, opportunities for, for everybody. So. Not everybody has the same set of facts, and that's not, you know, in some ways, that's not acceptable. I mean, a viewpoint is fine, but the science is also, I mean, you're looking for the scientific convent. Talk a little bit about um, the best possible science. What do you have at your disposal, um, and what do you wish you had at your disposal when you're making a plan? Are there things that you wish you knew that you don't know? Or are you looking at, you know, the most recent innovative scientific data that you can say, all right, like we feel confident about the data. Now this part is relational and this part is, you know, policy making, um, but we feel good about the science. Or are you looking at like, wow, I really wish we could, you know, I wish we knew this. Yes, there's uh, several cases like that. So uh, an example I can give right now is, in our assessment phase, you know, the assessments, you know, th there's 15 different assessments out there or, or, or topic areas. Uh, right now, we're co we broke them up into smaller pieces on the Black Hills. So there's there's 20 of 20, 21 of them all together. But we broke them up, you know, there's there's an air quality assessment, for instance. There's aquatics. There's at-risk species. There's uh, forested ecosystems, uh, timber, range, et cetera, et cetera. So... The, the intent with the assessments basically is it identifies what we know, currently know about each of those resources and what we don't know. And, and we, we make light of that, you know, and, you know, what we say in those assessments, you know, isn't, doesn't mean that that's how it's going to be as we move into uh, actual revision, start to put a draft env environmental impact statement together. You know, new data comes in all the time. You know, what we're we're considering what we have on hand right now. So, you know, uh, the acronym BASI, B-A-S-I, Best Available Scientific Scientific Information. 
that can change over the next few years as we go through this process. So, and we will consi- consider and bring that new information in as we move through that process. That's something that I think has caused some, a little bit of confusion uh, as we move through where some, some of the public think, you know, these assessments, you know, are, are what, you know, what we're, what's said in them now is, is how it's going to be moving forward. And that's not the case at all. It's just merely a snapshot in time of what we know currently as a present day. So new information comes in on, on, a, on a certain resource. Yes, we're going to take a hard look at that and, and consider it and, and try to utilize it wherever we can. Yeah. yeah. A hard question, I think, maybe not for you, and then a fun one. Um, does timber have an outsized influence in the plan? You know, the timber resource is something that will will be a big topic moving into revision. It already is, you know, as a, you know, a lot of folks have heard that. But, yes, uh, the timber program and sustainability will be a very uh, important topic and a hot topic moving forward. Absolutely. So, Why do you care? Do you have childhood memories? Do you have, do you use, how do you use the forest? Help me understand your personal relationship with this place yeah away from your desk yeah well i'm originally from uh, the pine ridge indian reservation my folks have a a ranch down there and and, uh growing up we had a a a summer rec recreational residence uh up on the forest so we would come up as kids and you know you know being a kid being outdoors i always spent a lot of time out in the woods and then once i was fortunate enough to you know get a job with the forest service i got to be outdoors all the time uh and just love the outdoors, love to, you know, I hike during the weekend in, in my off hours, on off duty. It's just, it's a great spot to, to hang out, and, and there's a lot of history here, you know. Uh, and, you know, folks come from all over the world to, to see the Black Hills, you know, National Forest and, and be a part of it. So it's important to me, uh, for me personally, this is, I've done a lot of temporary assignments on other forests throughout my career, but my career has been on the Black Hills National Forest. So, it you know this forest is important to me. It's it's home. So I, I want to see us succeed, uh, and you know put the be, you know develop the best possible plan that we can come up with. So yeah. working with the public. Yeah. Hmm. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, just that, like I said, we're we're getting ready to move into phase two of uh, forest plan revision, and we will. Uh, you know, continue to have uh, public meetings uh, scheduled, and you can look at our our external website uh, on the Black Hills National Forest, and any new information will be posted there as it becomes available. But I, I thank you for the opportunity. Lou Conroy is the Forest Plan Revision Team Leader for the Black Hills National Forest, and you can hear SDPB's special report, Black Hills in the Balance, on tomorrow's In the Moment. Listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. It is time for our weekly teacher talk, and this one is a tribute to the library. Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur join us each Tuesday with research and insight into the teaching profession. Benz has been a teacher in South Dakota for 23 years. Wilbur is a faculty member at the University of South Dakota School of Education. Now, each teacher talk conversation you hear on In the Moment has a companion blog. And you can find that online at sdpb.org slash teacher talk. Here is our library conversation. Jackie Wilbur, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Gina Benz here in Sioux Falls, welcome back as well. Good to be here. 
Jackie, we're going to start with you because we are talking about the power of the library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me while I fawn and gush over the library. What are some of your memories of, of libraries growing up? Oh, I'm so happy you feel the same way I do. I just absolutely love the library. Um, I was a small child in Yankton, South Dakota, and I went to what I called library school, but it was just weekly story time. And (laughs) I absolutely loved story time. I remember all the books we read, maybe not all, but I felt like I did. I liked sitting on the carpet. I liked talking about letters. I loved the art projects we did afterwards, the smell of the library, the feel of the library. It just, I don't know. I was in love right away. Gina, library memories from early? I could talk forever on this. You know, in elementary school, I remember picking up Nancy Drew books, and I wasn't ready to read them yet, but I wanted to so badly. And so I still checked them out and tried my best. And then in middle school, I got into Irma Bombeck. Remember her? (laughs) She was like this comedian, um, but middle-aged woman. Um, And then I also remember one day, getting into the library so I could look at the encyclopedias because I found out my grandpa had prostate cancer. I had no idea what prostate meant. I got into that encyclopedia and I learned all about it in my middle school library. In Uh high school, I worked in our library. One day we had a bat in the library. (laughs) That was, and it's kind of magical still, right? (laughs) And then the card catalog, that's uh-huh. how old I am. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, I had my little kids, and I took my kids to the library, just like you were talking about, Jackie. You know, now my parents love to go to the library. They're in their 70s. And I think it just, it's an important thing all the way from tod- being a toddler to being in retirement. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the first time being in the library after, because I was a huge card catalog lover as well. And standing at the shelf and realizing, like, similar books were shelved together. Yes. (laughs) Like, I remember that moment of epiphany where you realize that somehow this had been organized, that if you were looking for a book on poetry, other books on poetry were nearby. And at the time, so I must have been quite young. I don't remember how Mm -hmm. old I was. But that just blew my mind that they would help you, that they would help you find that. I didn't have, I don't remember a public library growing up because I grew up rural. Mm-hmm. And I know they exist, but my parents didn't take us into the library. The The big library I remember was the classroom, the classroom mm. library of my aunt, who was an elementary school teacher. And the little reading corner and the beanbag chair, and that's during the summer. She would work on her lesson plans, and I would lay in that beanbag chair and read James oh. and the Giant Peach. <sighs> oh, yes. Uh, my small town, Lenox, did have a library, and that was a glorious place. And my church had a library, too. So I was surrounded. You were surrounded by books. And now my daughter grew up in Sioux Falls, and we went into the Oakview Library not too long ago. She was in college, and she just exhaled and said, oh, I grew up here. Mm. And I was like, well done, Mom. (laughs) Yes. Kudos to you. Gold star. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jackie, you wanted to write about this because you also, you know, these are your colleagues. School librarians are people that it's about more than just, first of all, we underestimate what they do to curate mm-hmm. the collection anyway. These are not random books on the shelves to begin with. Second of all, they're, they're teachers in the classroom. 
Yeah. In partnership with the classroom teachers. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am just in absolute admiration and appreciation for school librarians. I did serve as a public librarian um, for a few years in Omaha. And so that kind of reopened my eyes to all of the things that school librarians do. But you're right, as an English teacher, I partnered with the school librarian all the time, both when I taught high school and middle school. You know, they really teach invaluable research skills. I remember taking my um, ninth grade students in for a research project and the school librarian at the time had designed this whole um, thing about finding credible resources. Mm -hmm. So not only were they looking, you know, in the physical library, but then online there was this whole thing that she had designed where they would go to resources online that looked credible and then she had different ways that they could kind of check to see their credibility. And so that to me, and that was happening in 2010 to 2014, so the need has only increased as we've had more technology for students to have that critical thinking piece. Also, their ability to do book talks and match students to a perfect book never ceases to blow my mind. When I worked as a librarian, I sometimes had that magic touch where I would hand the right book to the right kid, and it does feel really good. Uh, <laughs> but those school librarians do it day in and day out. I just was blown away. And you're right, they are teachers too. So we co-planned lessons, um, particularly in English class, and I just am forever grateful. Thank you, school librarians. Yeah, Dina, how do you work with your school librarian? Well, I think the librarian Jackie's referring to is Jeannie Connor. Is that right, Jackie? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Here's what's super cool. Jeannie Connor was my high school librarian in oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I worked for her as a library assistant freshman through senior year. And, uh, yeah, she just instilled that love of books in me. And then, then she's ended up at my high school where I'm teaching, and we're suddenly colleagues, and I still have to call her Mrs. Connor. And... <laughs> The same thing, that whole finding credible sources is huge. You know, when I was in college, we'd go to the period Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. You don't need to do that anymore. There's databases that have all the magazines uploaded into them. You can get a PDF of the articles, and and yeah, she, you, she you helped would, them navigate would, that. You would look up the topic, yes, mm -hmm. prostate cancer, and then it would tell you all the magazines and journals, and, and then you'd have to find the one in your library that they carried. And then you should find the article, maybe even on microfiche. So yes, yay for... <laughs> and that was my job as the library yeah. assistant at my high school, as I went to oh. the magazines we had and found mm -hmm. the articles they needed and maybe made a photocopy. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when budget cuts come, Jackie, or when controversy comes because people are upset about something in the community or something in the, in the national news, for example, the libraries can take a lot of heat. What kind of pressure are you seeing... Um, for libraries now in the schools. Yeah, um, so I just read about in how Houston, Texas, they transformed 28 of their school libraries into what they're calling team centers, um, which seem to be spaces designed for students who are maybe disruptive or disobedient to go and do their lessons virtually, kind of like a timeout room. Um, and that seems to be a trend that's been happening over the past 20 years of, of defunding some of the school libraries, like you said, when there's budget cuts and things like that. And so um, that plus the public libraries have been um, a little bit more in the news lately when it comes to book banning. And so um, there have been some libraries that have kind of that legislation over their head that if they're not banning certain books that are deemed inappropriate, they could lose funding. And that's a big 
That's a big swath of what is deemed inappropriate. You might think you understand what that means, but that can be a lot of different things to a lot of different parents Mm -hmm. or a lot of different community members might choose something that other people wouldn't. It's all very confusing. Gina, what have you seen in high school from when it comes to like book challenges, challenges to literature? You know, there's uh, parents who are concerned about drugs or alcohol or gangs or violence being portrayed in books. Of course, you've got the sex element. Um, And then just what words are used, swear words or um, derogatory terms. And so you're right, it's a wide swath. One day in... uh, when my son was in middle school, he, he came home with a book a teacher had handed him that, that is controversial and on some banned book lists. But that didn't bother me because I knew that my son and I had a good relationship and he could read the book and we could talk about it at home. And I guess I've always done that with my own two children where no matter what they're reading in school, we talk about it at home. And home is the anchor. Home is the place where... Um, we can sort through those tough issues. Yeah. Um, libraries as punishment. Go to the, the oh. team center because I can't imagine the stories that we were telling at the top of the hour. I'm sure there are other people listening who have stories of not being welcomed in the library or being sent to the library as some kind of punitive measure. What do we lose when we lose the sanctity of a library, Gina? We lose a gathering place, and I would say a sense of community. Um, the library is a, whether it's a public library or a school library, it it's a place for community people to gather, for community people to come and find books. And I would even say it's essential to our democracy, because it's where people can learn and read and know what they need to know to be citizens of this country and to have an opinion that is well founded and well researched. Hmm. Jackie, what do you want to add to that? What do we lose when we lose libraries or when we lose them as a a safe space? Yeah, I think um, the research is really clear on this. Decades of research have been happening on school libraries and in school districts that have robust library systems. They have higher student achievement, standardized test scores, graduation rates, literacy rates. Um, They master the content faster. So there's just very clear evidence that school libraries do greatly benefit the whole. And public libraries are the same way. Um, They've done a recent study from 2019 that talked about how the ability for the libraries to connect people to the public goods is one of the greatest services they provide. So when I worked in the public library, we answered all kinds of questions of from where's the nearest hospital to who can I contact about help for taxes. And we stored all of that information so that we could answer those questions. So people who have robust public libraries, communities that do, have increased access to health care, addiction treatment, stress management, food security, uh, child early childhood literacy programming, job opportunities, internet access. It's also one of the only spaces anymore where people can exist free of charge Mm -hmm. and there's no questions asked. You can walk into the library as long as you're minding your own business and not bothering anyone and exist there. And that there's very few spaces that exist like that right now. So I think that part is really special and important to keep in mind. So if you don't learn how to use a library, that's a huge disadvantage to you as an adult because whatever city you go to, one of your first stops might be the public library, whether it's a small town Mm -hmm. or whether it's the biggest city in the world. Um, Finding the library 
is a pretty good place to start. Yeah, when you said your daughter smelled the library and was like, <laughs> this is, you know, my childhood. Every time I've moved, I've gone to the library as like a sense of home. Mm -hmm. You know, the library wherever, whatever town I've been in has that same familiarity to me. And one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the library is it does teach you how to use it. Like you remarked on that yourself that you noticed one day, oh, these books are organized in a specific way. And so I think that's kind of a magical a revealing that the library will do but trust and believe every librarian would love to help you with the library you can always <laughs> ask <laughs> i was waiting on bated breath for someone to come and ask me how ask the library questions. worked yeah <laughs> uh gina a, a little bit about as a as a classroom as an english teacher at the high school level um you mentioned you know, wanting to read nancy drew before you could really handle the material from an academic level i'm, I'm guessing and then your son bringing home something that was kind of controversial and was really important to go over at home. Kids must have, maybe by the time they get to you, they've figured out how to self-select. But how do we teach kids to select books that are right for them, whether it's the reading level or the content level, in a way that honors and respects their dignity and their rights as a reader, but then also helps them learn a hard skill because it's not always easy to pick out the book that you're going to it's a good fit for yourself. You know, there's a really cool strategy that my uh, friend Cindy Cummins was doing the other day. She teaches at Lincoln High School, and that's called a uh, date with a book. Mm. And so then there's books, and students get maybe three minutes with each book, so it's mm. kind of like speed dating. And, you know, they look at the cover. They read a page out of it. They look at a table of contents. And so right there is a skill done in a really fun way of, Here's the different things you could look at with the book to decide if this is the right book for you. And then as English teachers, it's so important that we remind students that we're going to move them into productive struggle. So it's that sweet spot of struggle where it's not too much, but it's enough so that you will grow. And so you may not want to read Romeo and Juliet, but we're going to tackle it and probably have some fun in the end. Yeah. Jackie, anything you want to add about helping preserve the dignity or the rights of the reader, but then also guiding them toward literature that is, you know, appropriate from a, from a level standpoint? I mean, I just remember all the teachers were like, you know, that's, uh, I mean, you never want to say to a kid that book is too hard for you mm -hmm. or that book is too easy for you. Like, yeah. You don't want to say those kinds of things, but yet you also want to encourage them to try a little harder or you know, maybe you would enjoy this one more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, in the library, we would always say all reading is good reading. And so we really just encouraged students to gravitate towards what they like and what they would want to read to get that love of reading as, as kind of the primary focus. But parents often would ask, you know, my child's at a blank level or they're doing this or that with accelerated reader they would have questions and one uh, quick way to t check for a book is to open it up to any page and then have your child read it out loud and if they can read all but one or two words if they're struggling with one or two words on a page that's about the right level for them um, because any more than that it's hard to persist if you're not understanding three four five or more words and if they can read all the words then they obviously have that mastered and if they want to check that out because it's interesting to them, of course. But if they're looking for a challenge, one to two words per page that's kind of unknown or tricky would be a good place to start. I remember those Brian Selznick books, um, Hugo Cabret, 
there's like graphic novels, but they're super fat. And mm-hmm. I remember yeah. kids in the library in the elementary school checking that out and just walking down the hallways like so proud. Yes. Because they had this big old <laughs> thick book and they could read it. And, um, you know, c- but convincing parents that that also was reading, that they were reading that graphic novel and their attention was being drawn from page to page. And they were super proud that they were readers like the other kids in their classmates. Like all of that had value and mm-hmm. i just love brian selznick and he has a new book out now so. yay wonderful we have so many graphic novels yeah. in my high school and it's just lovely and the students gravitate there and they they're just devouring those books and i have an el student right now english learner student mm-hmm. from, and he he's devouring the graphic novels too because how great is that he's learning english and there's pictures right there mm-hmm. but it's Are not they, a picture book yeah all right, it's National Library Card Sign Up Month. Yay. Jackie, close, close <laughs> us out with a little a little tip of the hat to getting your library card. Yes, so thank you again to public and school librarians and libraries. It is National Library Card Sign Up Month, the month of September. Um, generally, getting a library card is free, and you only need an ID and proof of your address to get one. So pop into your local library today. All right, thanks for stopping by. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on the next In the Moment SDPB special report, Black Hills in the Balance. Join me for an in-depth exploration of our multi-use forest. Special thanks today to SDPB's Rapid City crew for their assistance and to engineer Colton Nicholson and news director Josh Chilson for extra assistance with today's show. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.